are listening to Dirty Feet, a dance podcast. I'm Allison Burns. For this episode, I have the immense pleasure of speaking with Judith Davies, who is actually uh, somebody who brought me into the world of dance when I was very young. She was one of my first dance instructors, and she is the founder of the Ottawa Dance Center Schools, where I studied as a little girl uh, up until when I um, was about halfway through my studies at Canterbury High School. So quite a few years. I haven't done the math, but it was a big part of my history and my, my dance experience. So thank you for that, Judith. You're entirely welcome. It was a pleasure, actually. Good. You're a lovely little student. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to talk about you today. We're going to talk about Ottawa Dance Center Schools. This is a, a company, the, um, a school that's been around since 1971, 72, when it was founded. It has a long history here in Ottawa, and you've done the same for a lot of different Ottawa dancers, including Sylvie de Rossier, mm-hmm. which is a that's fun right. fact. We've had her on the podcast a couple times already, speaking about the School of Dance, which is another school here in Ottawa, and also about her own work in Dorsal Dance. So we're talking big history, this, this dance school. It's a very long history, mm-hmm. if you're including me in it. <laughs> I'm much older than the school. Fair enough. Uh, let's talk about the, the founding of the school and, and how it came to be. Well, it was kind of accidental in many respects. Um, I had been a young dancer, both in Montreal and in Toronto, and I had met another teacher, well, I was in between in Ottawa for a short period of time uh, by the name of Joy Sheetsy, and she had been teaching um, as a graduate from the National Ballet School Teacher Training Program in Ottawa and Lyndon Lee. Uh, at that point, I had come to Ottawa very briefly and was doing part-time teaching via the Y and assorted small community projects. We were both in our early 20s. Um, I had danced professionally in Montreal uh, as a student apprentice at Les Grands Ballets Canadiens and with Montreal contemporary dancers, who at that time was under the direction of Hugo Romero. Uh, And then my marriage at that time brought me here, and I thought, oh my gosh, there's no dance here. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But my path crossed with Joyce and with a number of other people, like Elizabeth Langley, who was also working here. Elizabeth Langley, who who founded the program at Concordia University. That's correct. And Elizabeth sort of took any errant dancers who happened to land in Ottawa at a very nebulous time, and we all kind of worked together in a cooperative environment. Uh, As it turned out, I left Ottawa at that time, but Joyce and I had also done some collaborative things together. I moved to Toronto and I was dancing with the Judy Jarvis Company at that time. And I got a plaintive call from Ottawa saying, "Um, I don't think this project that I'm working on right now is going to hold up much longer. Would you be interested? When are you coming back to Ottawa? And it was Joyce. So at that point, we kind of put our heads together. My husband was finishing up a master's degree, and we were moving back to Ottawa. And lo and behold, the school at that point became a reality, and um, we didn't have a studio. But I had former students. She had former students. And we kind of took $25 to the NCC and said, um, can we rent a studio, just, just a room, someplace, center town, and see what happens, just open it up for registration. That's exactly what we did. 
uh, we got 100 students, bing, bang, bong, wow. in about 48 hours. So that was enough to convince the NCC at that time that we were a viable partnership and that the school was a go. So that's how we started, basically. I was doing a Royal Academy of Dance uh, classical ballet training, which I had been trained in. I was training students at that time, as I had been doing in Montreal when I was also at Le Grand. And at that point, Joyce was doing the Chiquetti end of it, and I was doing the modern. So it kind of grew like Topsy. Uh, I had been to the States. I had all kinds of wonderful ideas, I thought, at that time. I'd studied at the Graham School. I'd studied with Alvin Ailey. Uh, I'd studied with Twyla Tharp briefly and worked with Jamie Cunningham, the whole raft of people. Anyway, the long and the short of it was we went from 100 students uh, and outgrew our little space on Rideau Street and ended up taking another space on Sussex Drive, where we remained until 19... 81, I guess. And then Joyce and I separated. She went off to found a strictly classical program with Marilee Hodgson's, which became the School of Dance. And we continued on with, by that time, we had, a, I think, a teaching faculty of five of us uh, at Sussex as the Ottawa Dance Centre, which, unfortunately, a year later burned down. <laughs> So that's basically how the school started. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also had a performing company. Yes, yes. And I do <laughs> want to get to the performing company, yeah. certainly. I want to stay a little bit longer on, on the school, sure. if I may. So you, now, now you've expanded also your, your disciplines. There's ballet, there's modern, there's some jazz and some other stuff happening as well. You also serve students from, from little, little girls like me and little boys and all the way up to the university level. That's um, right. And something really special about ODCS is that you're not a competitive school. No, not and at I all. And I would love to hear you speak a little bit about that. Um, my, my premise has always been that your competitive edge is yourself. That's who you're competing with. You're competing with how you perceive your goals what you wish to attain, what you wish to achieve through your art form. Um, I really don't believe and never have in dance as a competitive thing, uh, competitions. I, I'm sorry, I, I can't get my head around them. Um, I think the only time I feel that they have value is they simply give kids a performance experience, but unfortunately, the whole year's academics is focused on that one dance that they're going to do to achieve that performance experience. And the downside is they never learn anything beyond that. Uh, so you have kids trying to audition for university entry in dance programs that do fabulous auditions because they send in a video of one of their competitive pieces, but when they actually come to work with a choreographer or a teacher, they're unable to expand beyond that one dance that they did. And to my mind, that's not an artist. That's somebody who has learned by rote how to do something over and over again. So we've lost the art. We've lost the creativity. We've lost that individual expression, which to my mind is the essence of dance. Mm -hmm. It seems to be creating a chasm or, or um, 
uh, people are no longer educated in, in what dance is as an art, right? And they're, and they're not pursuing it necessarily in that vein. There's a lot of more interest in commercial dance, and so you think that was dance, and going into music videos and things like that, that's what kind of com- competition would prepare you for. And that's correct. And, and there's... <sighs> There's nothing negative about that if that's what your focus is. If that, you know, in my day it was, gee, I'd like to be a rockette and go to New York and be in the kick line. I never wanted that. I wanted to choreograph, I wanted to express myself, I wanted to be a ballet dancer. But more importantly, as I grew older, I wanted to choreograph and have that more expansive view of what the human body and the human soul can be in, a, in an art form. Uh, it was no accident my undergraduate degree was in fine arts. And they kind of all came together as I started to, my brain sort of matured as I hit 17, 18, 19, and I really focused on that aspect of it. So it was kind of a shock, really, when this competitive thing emerged like Topsy, grew like Topsy, in the late 80s and 90s, um, having had a fairly strict British upbringing in, in my dance training, and then in the States, in New York, which is very focused, it was an anomaly. But unfortunately, that anomaly is turned into the norm. Yes. That's the sad part. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I wasn't uh, aware of, I guess, until I came into university and I was studying dance with, with uh, students who'd grown up in that other vein and understanding the, what, what an asset I had coming from, from this type of training. Exactly. And I felt that, too, the individuality I mean, I I strongly believe, and you would hopefully remember as a youngster with this school, everybody was an individual. You were a little person that was being given the opportunity to explore an art form to the best of your individual ability. There was no kick line, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, It was definitely a give and take between the teacher and the student. And your tears were our tears, and uh, your laughter was our laughter. It was that kind of community that we hoped we'd built. And after 45 years, the fact that I'm now <clears throat> getting grandmothers bringing in their little ones and saying, we'd really like you have you teach because we took classes with you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, I think, a testament to that way of thinking. And it's not just me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, a, I'm part of a faculty. There's no owner of this school, okay? There is a founder, though. <laughs> there is a founder. That's right. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about those other faculty members. I, I had the, the absolute pleasure to come back and, and substitute for maternity leave and teach a couple modern classes. And it was just a joy to see that uh, some of the people that I learned from all those years ago are still, are still here teaching, like yep. Mr. Fang, like uh, Francesca. Yep. Can, you, can you speak a little bit about the superstars of your faculty? Yeah, and I think our legacy, if nothing else, is that we have teachers like Ping Feng, who came out of Central Valley of China right, right after or right before Tiananmen Square, and came over as a guest artist with what was then um, the Ottawa Ballet Theatre, uh, with uh, Frank Augustine as the artistic director. And he didn't speak a word of English at the time, and he started with us. Uh, teaching bits and bites, and Francesca, who came from about five different companies, and she was a graduate of the National Ballet School and the National Ballet School's teacher's training program, subsequent to her dancing professionally. Both of them have been with me for over 20 years. 
uh, I think Ping is like 25 or 26 years now. Uh, Francesca's into her 21st year. Um, and I, I, I take great pride in that, in that it's given us um, a foundation that is, to my mind, fabulous. And the dance uh, people that I've got in the contemporary faculty haven't stayed as long, simply because usually most contemporary dancers want to be dancers and choreographers. And they're usually more mature. They're often in their late 20s and 30s when they actually start to teach. They often have families. So it's, it's a more intellectual kind of approach. We're dealing with older kids there. So they do tend to move on. They go to universities and they teach there or they go back and study. But even still, Sophia's been with us now for seven or eight years. Um, I have people coming back. Kathy Kyle, who teaches at the School of Dance, started with us at age 16 or 17. Um, oh, if I started rhyming off names, <laughs> we'd be here all day. But they're all over the place. I can't go to any city in this country without banging into somebody that I've taught or danced with our company or guested with our company. Peggy Baker guested with our company many years ago. Um, anyway, the list goes on. Of course. So let's let's talk now about about Ottawa Dance Center as a company and the history of that. Yeah. Okay, that was that was actually again kind of grew out of the school. Joyce and I had been asked once we got the school going. There were a lot of people that really were involved in dance. This was in the 70s, and it was a great, um, I wrote a paper called Awakening, um, which is, you can still get it online via our website, but it's a history of the growth of dance and theater in the city at that time, and it was, it was quite, quite fantastic. Elizabeth was here, we were doing the school. There were young people who wanted to perform, and the school boards wanted dance and the arts involved in their curriculum. So would we get together and have a small company? Well, we had a bunch of advanced dancers at that time, plus a couple of professional dancers like Judy Coltman Brown, who had been with the National Ballet Company. And we started to work with other gifted choreographers that came from Toronto or Montreal and started putting together choreography that we could take into schools that was accessible for youngsters. And within two years, uh, more and more artists became interested, and uh, people like Linda Rabin were coming to Ottawa to work with other theater people. And we thought, well, maybe this could become a viable performing company. There never had been one here before. There had been Nesta Tumine, who had had classical ballet studio, and she managed to have a small ballet company that lasted for a very short period of time, but there was no funding for the arts in Ottawa. There was funding for the Arts Centre, but the Arts in Ottawa always took a back seat. We had the lowest per capita funding, and we still do, of any city in Canada. I th excuse me, I'll correct myself, I think we're the second lowest now, which to my mind is appalling, but that, don't get me on the political end of it, because that's something else again. So the company then became, it was an Ottawa Dance Centre workshop at that point. It then became Ottawa Dance Theatre, and we had uh, I think six professional dancers at that time that we had auditioned between Montreal and Toronto. And we had, over the 10 years that it existed, the choreographers such as Anna Blouchon, Carol Anderson, Christopher House, 
uh, guest artists from the Graham Company. Uh, Serge Benetton performed with us for a year and also We've choreographed. We've also had him on the podcast. So uh, that's who? great. We've had Serge on the podcast, so there's another okay. connection. And yeah, he actually got to Canada via Ottawa Dance Theatre. We were the ones that sponsored him. That's phenomenal. Yeah, that was in 1986, I believe. And uh, yeah, the, well, this is it. We've, I look back on the history of who has choreographed, who has performed with us. And it's, I somehow kind of pinch myself, you know, because that, that element seems to have been dissolved over the years, the 90s, the early 2000s, dance became very, very watered down, filtered out, competitive, uh, until the Ottawa Dance Directive started. There was one other voice, and he was a very important voice, and that was Peter Bonaham. And Peter, bless his soul, hung in there, and I mean, the big guns were out to get him, it didn't matter what happened, he stuck to his guns himself. And that's, of course, Peter of Le Groupe. Of Le Groupe de la Place Royale. Le Groupe came here after we'd been existing. I think we'd been in existence five years at that point. <coughs> and Peter and uh, Jean-Pierre Perrault moved here and set up shop on Spark Street. Uh, anyway, the, the long and the short of it was they were the only company that lasted longer than 10 years. Ottawa, uh, well, what was originally Ballet Theatre and then Ottawa Ballet, both died in very short order, initially with Larry Gratis at the helm and then finally Frank Augustine. And then Le Groupe became a cooperative. It went from being a touring company and a viable performing company to being a cooperative, uh, which was highly creative. And the funding was so ridiculous. I mean, I've talked to Peter, and I, I scratched my head, but now I'm, I've been on the receiving end, so I'm not scratching my head anymore. The city was charging them an exorbitant rent, but they'd given them a grant, you see. So the grant, of course, would have to go back to the city to pay for the rent for the company. And, and it was crazy. It was like a crazy situation. But now he's, of course, semi-retired, and I believe he still teaches and moderates young choreographers and dancers. So that's pretty much the history of the school. We were bitten by the same bug with the Ottawa Dance Theatre, which was, of course, the fact that um, money dried up in the mid-'80s. Uh, we had a recession, and um, theatre companies, dance companies, bit the dust one right after the other, and we were, of course, a small company, and we lost a lot of the grants and funding that was available. So we closed our doors in 1987. But for 10 years, we toured all over Ontario and Eastern Quebec, or Western Quebec, excuse me, yeah, Western Quebec. I'm going to cling to this little, this little drop of hope that you put in there when you started mentioning the Ottawa Dance Directive yes. and ask you about your perspective on the, on the industry or the scene here in Ottawa today. I think there's a great deal of talent. Um, I'd like to hopefully think that the city known as Ottawa will recognize that this cultural heritage needs to be fueled and fostered. And 
and that more money, it's always about money, about funding for the artist, is channeled towards the arts. It's very difficult at this point because we've got a city that's growing exponentially and with a lot of infrastructure like the rapid transit and huge building conglomerates, although they are supposed to include expansion to the arts court and out into the, mm -hmm. the new large conglomerate out in, I guess it's Tunney's Pasture or Le Breton Flats. Um, hopefully there'll be more venues for artists. Uh, sitting back in my rocking chair in Afghan, I can look at it and hope that the seeds that were planted by us with lights in our eyes and great aspirations will come to fruition. That hasn't been the case so far. I look at the people who are working with the dance directive and I say, good on you, do it, go for it, try. Um, the drum isn't big enough and it's not loud enough. That unfortunately needs to change. The arts community needs a bigger voice, a louder voice, and they need to bring it to the, particularly the politicians' attention that people do remember arts and culture, and arts and culture brings in far more money than how good your roads are or whether you have a rapid transit. I mean, that, help, that helps, but it's the arts and the culture of a community that becomes its legacy. Something that occurred to me when, when you're, you're talking about all these artists that you've worked with, and, and we recognize these names, and we do because they persisted. You know, they've been your colleagues in the past, and they persist, and they continue to make work regardless of the, you know, all these odds against them. And, uh, and for that, they deserve so much applause and respect. Yeah, I think, I think all of us, um, would I do it again? Yes, but I do it differently. Would I do it in Ottawa? Mm, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, I'm lucky. I have dual citizenship. I'm able to go back and forth across the border, and I do choreograph in the States, mainly for universities and university programs. Um, I've been lucky in the sense that I've been able to get a life membership with the Royal Academy, and that I... I love my students. That's, that, I think, of all the things I do, just that un, I, I, indescribable rapport with a student that grows over the years means more to me than how much money I make. And I can tell you, I don't make a lot. Like most of us in dance, it's, we do it out of love. And an insatiable desire to preserve the art form as it should be. And that's, I think, the rub right at the moment. I remember being in high school, being at the Arts High School at um, Canterbury in the city, and we, we had a field trip to visit um, the group, and we were hearing Peter speak. And he, that was the first time that I understood that this person, who, who was a successful person in the field of dance, was telling us, oh, oh no, I don't make any money. And that just blew my mind. Well, one of my latest stories, uh, I was sitting in a meeting uh, with some people from the arts and culture of the city of Ottawa, and we were talking about how the school basically has a not-for-profit mandate, and that 
a large number of our kids come from low-income families, and that we've never turned a child away because they couldn't pay. We've always found some way to either subsidize that child or get help or get a donation or whatever. And I pointed out that my teachers teach it not just our school, at several other schools, in order to make just the tiniest living. And I pointed out that my salary was the ridiculous sum that it is, uh, very low. And I'm lucky now that I'm in my dotage, I do have a senior's pension, but that wasn't always the case. I worked many different things in order to keep head above water. And one of the people, on the so-called arts and cultural panel looked at me and she said, well, that's the way most artists live, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I paused. <laughs> I did not leap across the table as I wanted to. And I think, that, as I said, the drum isn't big enough and it's not loud enough. That has to change. Yep. The artist has to find a voice. And we did have a voice. In the 60s and the 70s, we really did have a voice. And unfortunately, the other generations, the gener I think basic survival has been the focus of the generations that have followed. And consequently, their focus has been more on their own self-expression and not enough on getting out there and fighting for it, fighting for better salaries, fighting for recognition as a bona fide artist. Good God, hockey players make a fortune. Mm -hmm. And we have to change the standards ourselves because if, if everyone's willing to work for free or peanuts, it's very hard to demand what you're worth. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm saying. I mean, the, the inequity between sports and, and the arts is vast. And that wasn't so once upon a time, certainly not in Europe. I mean, the, the competitive games of the medieval times were funded probably about on the same par as the visual artist and those that were producing literature, all of whom had angels or sponsors or patrons. patriarchs. Yeah. yeah, patrons. We don't have that anymore. We do in Europe. It's a, I think in Canada, unfortunately, hasn't quite decided if they're going to follow an American model, yeah. which is large corporate support. Every town in the States, when I teach in the, in the States, has a small ballet company and a small orchestra, and they're all supported by the local hardware store and the pharmacy and the grocery store on the corner. We don't have that here. We don't have the same thing. We have large corporate support, but it's geared towards the major companies that are, have the most visibility. So that still is not feeding your grassroots, which are the mo most important part of arts development. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could talk about this for another three hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, would, I would like to switch gears and ask you um, about, I mean, clearly you've dedicated so much of your life to this. What got you interested in dance in the first place? What was the spark? <laughs> um, I was kind of a wacky kid. I had a lot of energy. Uh, I had a lot of imagination, and I went to see my first ballet when I was like five, about six years of age, seven years of age, and it was the Sadler's Wells Ballet at that time, and I can remember who the lead dancer was. It was Elaine Fifield, and she was dancing Coppelia. 
and I fell in love. I was smitten, I was blown away, I was whatever. And unusually, um, the next door neighbor to our family was a Van Prague. Now, this name probably means nothing to you nope. because this is generations ago, but Peggy Van Prague was the ballet mistress of the Sadlerswell Ballet, and she inevitably and initially uh, was a great mentor. She took me aside in the living room of the next door neighbor, the Van Prague's, because they, she was the cousin, and she did the usual sit in the froggy, bend over, put your nose on the floor, whatever, and I was a very flexible kid, and she said, oh, well, I think dance might help. I think this might, might be good for her. Because I fell from a standing start, because I was so loosely knit. I was that kind of kid. So off I went to ballet lessons. Yay. And I fell in love. It was, oh, what is it, torpedo? Man, the torpedo's full speed ahead <laughs> for the rest of my life. That's all I focused on, really. And I guess I could have done other things. I did have the fine arts, but dance kind of answered what I needed. Mm -hmm. Physically, intellectually, emotionally, whatever. And can you give us a, a snapshot a little later into your career, perhaps, perhaps your favorite moment on stage? As a dancer? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. I can tell you the funniest moment. Sure. <laughs> I had danced for years without contact lenses because they were the old hard ones. And I tell this to my little ones now when we're performing. Um, and I was dancing with Jarvis's company and we were doing a performance at the TWP, Toronto Workshop Productions Theatre. And if you know that theatre, it's almost like theatre in the round. And I had been rehearsing for forever and dancing in Montreal forever without contact lenses. Well, I finally got contact lenses. And I went out <laughs> and I took one look. Oh my God, there was an audience there. I could actually see faces. Before it had all been sort of this blissful black and gray shadowy movement out beyond the proscenium. Not in this case, there they were, real human beings in the flesh. And I had the biggest case of stage fright you can imagine. I got through it. The minute I got off stage, the contact lenses came out. I never, I never danced with them again. I did not. <laughs> I mean, to me, it was when I, I went out there, I was communicating, yes, but I was communicating to the great abyss. It wasn't to Mrs. Jones and her husband sitting in the front row with their two kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the funniest story. Other moments? Um, mm. No, I think, that's, I think that probably is one of the more memorable moments. And dancing with Judy. Mm. That was something else. She was an amazing, an amazing persona. And she's not with us anymore. She died very young. She was 43 years old. So. I'm sorry to hear it. Yeah. Brilliant choreographer. Studied with Mary Vigmon. And we had a very viable company. And interestingly enough, the people who came out of that company have gone on to found their own companies, their own schools. Everybody in that company went in several different directions. So it served, it served a very useful purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One of my most memorable moments as a dance student was lunch with Margot Fontaine in Montreal when I was 15. And I was 
absolutely mesmerized. She was gorgeous, and of course, she was the ballerina assoluta of that time, and it was in the 50s, and I was dressed to the nines, and we were all on our very best <laughs> behavior. And she was ever so sweet and talked and chatted to us. There were four or five of us as young students, and the RAD uh, director at that time in Montreal, Mary Mordell, who had been with the Sadler's Wells Ballet herself. Anyway, the long and the short of that story was that at the end of the luncheon, uh, we were served long sherbet glasses with alternating layers of whipped cream, fruit, and meringues. And inserted in the long sherbet glass was a spoon, a very long skinny spoon. Well, my friends and I looked at these. We weren't quite sure how to eat them. <laughs> Unfortunately, <coughs> I took my spoon and I pulled it out. And at, at an angle where the top meringue did a beautiful arc across the table, spray it with a trail of whipped cream across the table. And Fontaine covered it beautifully. She just looked at me and she said, oh, well, dear, they are difficult to eat, I know. <laughs> That was another embarrassment. Isn't that funny? I remember the embarrassing moments and, and, and the moments of terror. And I, and I'm sure there must have been elevating moments too, but those are the ones that stick those with me. Those are the me. ones we hold on to, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, how has your relationship to dance changed at your age? Oh, gosh. Hmm, how's it changed? I think I'm a little bit more accepting of what is possible and a reasonable aspiration and what could be almost obsessively not a tenable goal. Do you want to elaborate Does a little bit on that? It well, seems like there's a specific... Of a specific thing, I think as a teacher, because that's primarily what I do now, and as a choreographer, I think I have a better sense of being able to hone in on what a young student is capable of. So rather than trying to focus them on something that is not tenable, but they may think is tenable, I have a clearer picture of how to reach, I think, a way of saying, this is what you should do. This is what I feel you're going to be wonderful at. Why don't you try it? If you don't like it, you know, that's fine. But at least try it. I think years ago, I would have gone with that child's expression and not looked at the other things that I saw in her. I, th I don't know. It's maybe you trust it's maybe your instincts more I now? think I'm more intuitive in the way I teach than I was as a younger teacher. Mm-hmm. So um, I taught thousands, Allison. I mean, <laughs> and some things never change. A 14-year-old is always a 14-year-old. <laughs> the behavior is always like a 14-year-old. Same with a six-year-old. Same with an eight-year-old. There's variances, obviously, cultural variances, sociological variances, just the evolution of time, and all this, all the various stresses we have today that we didn't have before. But we had other things. You know, uh, perfectionism is an issue, um, and I think I've gone beyond that in the way I teach because mm. 
it can be a very negative thing. Um, I, I guess I, I don't know. I, I think I've simplified everything. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah, so it's not a complex answer. It's finding that road that's going to be the truest for that person mm -hmm. and trying to bring a sense of reality to what they do and a sense of joy because the minute you lose that sense of joy, the minute you lose that perspective on how wonderful it can be to create and be a dancer and you're only focusing on the goal, you've lost the art. It's not there anymore. That's great. I, I believe. That's great. Now, I'm very nervous about this question now based on, on, on your other memories being about embarrassing or terrifying moments, but I was going to ask you if you have a memory of me as a student, a profound one or a strong memory that you could yes. share with us. Oh, absolutely. I can remember you were very quiet, but you were absolutely focused. You were very shy child, but when you got into class, you would focus, you would do what you could do. Sometimes you got upset if it wasn't right there at the moment. I remember you more as a preteen and a teenager, and I always felt that what I was seeing was only part of Allison, that Allison was going to emerge down the road. <laughs> and if I could just keep you going <laughs> and not have you give up, that you would blossom. And that happened. I that think happened. So. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, I'm still on a journey, but I definitely feel Yeah, more but there was always this, this you, I always felt you holding back just ever so much when you were very little, and then a little less so as you got older. But you were there. You were always there. You were in that moment. And that's, that's very important for any artist. You know, you lose that focus, and ah, life can throw you some pretty heavy curves. And you, most artists, can roll with it. Yeah, artists working and producing their own work tend to be tremendously adaptable. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I live with an artist, so I know that when he's down about not producing what he wants to produce, it's, it's devastating. But you have to learn how to say, okay, I tried it. It didn't work. So I'm going to go back to what I know I can do and do well. Failure is just learning. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, and I tell kids that. <laughs> the minute they walk in, listen, I don't expect you to do this right away. Mm -hmm. But I never want you to say, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. You just can't do it today. Mm -hmm. Maybe next week. Maybe next month. But don't ever say can't. It doesn't exist in my vocabulary. You go for it. You try. Judith, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today and sharing a little bit about our histories. Um, so I've been speaking with Judith Davies, who is the founder of the Ottawa Dance Center Schools and mm -hmm. so much more, which we've just covered. <laughs> uh, do you have any final words that you'd like to tell everybody? Ah, about dance? About dance, about you, about the about school? About me? Whatever. Um, my husband was quite funny. About a month and a half ago, we were. I was belly aching about how much I had to do and I didn't have enough time and he said you know you've got to learn to stop 
In fact, I think that's what I'm going to put on your gravestone. You finally stopped. <laughs> and he's an artist. So, uh, yeah, I don't want to ever stop. I really don't. Oh, I love what I do. And as long as I've got something to offer, or people feel that I have, or the kids feel I have, I want to be able to keep going. And I, I guess that's not unusual. And I think those are the people that do keep going, the ones that have reasons to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, Martha Graham was what, 90? She says she was 91 or 92, but I think she was a little bit older than that. <laughs> you think she was lying about her age? Oh, of course. <laughs> Yes, indeed. She was a presence. <laughs> Small but mighty. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. You're entirely welcome. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to Dirty Feet. I'm Alison Burns with a few thank yous. First to Paula Flalo in the No More Radio Network. Also to Mainline Theatre and Montreal Improv Theatre and to all present and past team members who can be found on our website, dirtyfeetpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Dirty Feet Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Dirty Dirty Feet. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Stick around for a preview of our upcoming episode. I am speaking with Riley Sims. This is where the challenge of talking about dance in yeah. an audio format comes out. Yeah, like aesthetically, movement-wise, it's pretty uh, visceral, gestural, theatrical. Um, it's very human. And it's an ode to, yeah, old relationships, to new ones, to versions of self, to from all things that exist inside us, from sort of like dark sides to light sides. There's always that sort of duality in people. 